This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global. Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Nobody wants to outlive their money, but it happens, especially for women. That's why Gainbridge offers the Parity Flex annuity. It's designed for women's unique retirement needs with flexible withdrawals to help cover unexpected expenses, plus a guaranteed lifetime income benefit that keeps paying you even if your account balance is zero. In other words, it's like getting a paycheck for life. We'll say that again. A paycheck for life. Guaranteed. Sounds too good to be true? It's not. It's the Parity Flex annuity, and it's one more example of their commitment to creating a better financial future for women. One where they feel empowered, not excluded, and ready to take on whatever their next chapter holds. GameBridge believes financial flexibility and security are things we all could use more of. At Retirement Income You Can't Outlive is the ultimate flex. Who's with us? Start saving now at GameBridge.io. Please visit GameBridge.io slash ParityFlex for current rates, for product disclosures and disclaimers, and other important information. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Pluma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds to Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. Hi, hello. This is Let's Talk About Myths, baby. And I am Liv, the woman who cannot be brief anymore, no matter how hard she tries. Well, yeah, we're back in Euripides' Iphigenia at Alice. Because as much as I imagined it could be only two episodes, obviously I was wrong. Very wrong. I mean, it's Euripides. His characters are so interesting, so complex. It's such a fascinating look at these characters that we know so well, and kind of turning them on their heads and playing with their personalities. I love it, clearly. But before we get back into these final tragic moments of Iphigenia's life and the world's most obnoxious version of Achilles, just another reminder about the live stream show that I am doing from Athens with Ancient History Fangirl. On September 12th at 12 p.m. Eastern, I will be live streaming a moment via Moment House in Athens with Ancient History Fangirl. It's really pretty fucking exciting. 
Jen and Jenny of Ancient History Fangirl and I will be meeting up in Athens and putting on a live stream of our favorite Patreon series, Drunk Myths. Granted, we're not getting too drunk because this shit is live, but we will have some Greek wine in hand to tell the myth of Athens' mythological founding and those early snake people. There's a lot of good shit in this myth, and you can listen to us ramble on about it with a view of the Parthenon in the distance. That's right, a view of the Parthenon. You don't want to miss it. Tickets start at just $15 with the option for a smaller, more interactive Q&A session after the fact, where we'll be both at our tipsiest and we will be ready to answer any and all of your burning questions about mythology, podcast, Athens. It's going to be seriously fun. Go to momenthouse.com slash let's talk about myths, baby, for tickets. That is momenthouse.com slash let's talk about myths, baby, or click the link in this episode's description. I hope to see you all there. So, Iphigenia, the woman who really has barely been in this play because it's too busy focusing on her shit father, Agamemnon. Where were we then? Agamemnon has flip-flopped like a motherfucker, is the overarching plot point by now. The Greeks are stranded in Aulis, the place where they gathered in order to set out in their thousand ships to Troy in search of war. Paris and Helen have eloped, or something to that effect, and Menelaus is pissed. Agamemnon loves a good war, so he jumps at the chance to help his brother redeem himself, bring back his wife, and kill everyone associated with Paris and the Trojans. It's a totally reasonable response and not at all ridiculous. Kind of like all of the recent wars being fought. <laughs> they became stranded at Aulis because Agamemnon fucked with Artemis, though he hasn't told the audience that. They just know it. Artemis has taken away the winds, those things very necessary to sailing in the ancient world. They have oars, yes, but humans don't have the power to bring themselves across the whole Mediterranean without the winds helping them out. The Greek's prophet, Calchas, has said that the only way for them to get the winds back, to appease Artemis, is for Agamemnon to sacrifice his eldest daughter, Iphigenia. Here's where things get tricky. Agamemnon says he never actually wanted to do this, but he agreed to help his brother, Menelaus. His brother says he absolutely wanted to do this because he was so psyched to be leading the Greeks to war with Troy. Frankly, I believe Menelaus. Agamemnon, though, says he tried to take it back. He sent a messenger to tell Clytemnestra and Iphigenia not to come, to turn back, but they'd arrived before the messenger could even set out. So, I mean, honestly, Agamemnon, like, who do you think you're convincing? Poor Iphigenia and Clytemnestra are there, believing Iphigenia is going to marry Achilles, the best of the Greeks. The best of the Greeks who is absolutely an entitled brat in this play, and I am here for it. This is episode 140, Death is Bad, The Anger of Clytemnestra and the Strength of Iphigenia. We have just met Achilles. He enters the stage, likely the only person there besides the chorus of women. 
He speaks to them, asking where he could find Agamemnon. But he's really just putting on a show. He airs all his many grievances, both petty and otherwise, before he is met by our girl Clytemnestra, the queen of Mycenae, who has just, very bluntly, told Agamemnon to fuck off. Okay, she didn't tell him to fuck off, but she straight up did deny his request that she go home and leave Iphigenia's marriage to him alone, so she's badass. Clytemnestra greets Achilles, saying she could hear his little speech from inside and came to meet him. His response is, well, very Achilles. Quote, I am struck with awe. Who is this woman, I see, in every way most stunningly beautiful to my eyes? What an enormous dork. Clytemnestra introduces herself, though Achilles questions why she is there, surrounded by so many Greek soldiers. He tries to leave, worried about speaking with a woman. You know how that can be. Okay, fine. It's that it's not customary for men to speak to women like that, I guess. Regardless, he tries to leave, and Clytemnestra stops him. Take my hand, she says, as a blessing to start the marriage. What are you talking about? Achilles responds, I can't touch a woman's hand. The horror. It's fine, it's fine, Clytemnestra reassures him. You can touch my hand because you're about to marry my daughter. This is when shit really starts blowing up for fucking Agamemnon. Because, well, Achilles' response is to ask what marriage Clytemnestra is referring to. Quote, I'm at a loss for words. You must be deluded. Clytemnestra can't see the deception yet. She trusts there's something less nefarious. Oh, this happens to everyone, she tells him. You're awkward and nervous about having new in-laws. But no, that's not it, Achilles tells her. In fact, he says he's never courted her daughter and no one has mentioned a marriage to him. Nor, he says quite pointedly, quote, no word about a marriage has come to me from Atreus's sons. At this, Clytemnestra begins to realize what's going on, but still doesn't seem to blame anyone. She doesn't seem to see any harm in the deception beyond the deception itself. In fact, at this point, she's just embarrassed by the misunderstanding. Achilles, too, isn't that concerned. He says someone must be playing tricks on them, but that they shouldn't worry. Clytemnestra goes to leave him then, embarrassed and deeply awkward. Very cringe, though not yet full-on worrisome. Though Clytemnestra desperately wants out of this very awkward situation, before she can leave the stage, they're both addressed by the old man from before, the old man who attempted to bring the message to Iphigenia, but was too late. The man is very sketchy, very cagey. He asks the pair if they're alone out there, determining whether he can speak openly. We learn that while he was doing that job for Agamemnon, his allegiances lie with Clytemnestra. He's an enslaved man who was with her in her home in Sparta before she married Agamemnon, and thus, if it's one or the other, the man is siding with Clytemnestra. He tells them, quote, your daughter. Her father is planning to kill her.
So, finally, Clytemnestra knows, though she can't quite wrap her head around it just yet. The old man has told Clytemnestra Agamemnon's plan, that he intends to murder Iphigenia to cut her pale throat. Clytemnestra can't believe it, can't understand why her husband would consider such a thing. She worries he's lost his mind, that he isn't well. The man, though, tells her that he has, Agamemnon has lost his mind, but only when it comes to their daughter, and that he is in his right mind in all other ways. The man tells her why, that Calchas the prophet has told Agamemnon that they must sacrifice Iphigenia in order to sail to Troy, that without that they won't be able to go in search of Helen, that they won't be able to avenge the slight on Menelaus. Now, this is when I remind you that Helen is not only Menelaus's wife, and thus not only Clytemnestra's sister-in-law, but her blood sister. But if you think that means Clytemnestra might be the only one in this play not to express outright hatred of Helen, well, we'll get there. First, she lays it out bluntly. Quote, Iphigenia's life is the price for the return of Helen? It's true, she's assured. That is the plan. That is why she's there. The man tells her about the deception, that the marriage was all to convince Clytemnestra to bring Iphigenia to Aulis, to allow her daughter to travel there in order to be sacrificed. The idea of a marriage between two powerful families, of a young woman marrying the best of the Greeks, the hot one, is all in vain, all just to lure her to her untimely and horrific death. But how does the man know all this? Clytemnestra asks. So he explains it all. He tells her that when Agamemnon was briefly in his right mind, he decided that he did not want to sacrifice their daughter, and that he sent the man off with a letter to bring it to Clytemnestra and prevent the whole mess from happening. So how did it happen that I didn't get this letter? She asks. Menelaus, he tells her bluntly, quote, Menelaus, the cause of all our woes, tore it from my hand. The way we get all of these different interpretations on the actions of both Menelaus and Agamemnon is fascinating. It feels to me that Euripides is really playing with the idea of unreliable characters. Who do we believe? Agamemnon tells us one thing, Menelaus tells the opposite. This man heard his story primarily from Agamemnon and only experienced Menelaus trying to keep the plan in place, but not the Menelaus who, so shortly after, came around and determined that maybe it wasn't worth it to kill Iphigenia. This play is, at its core, a story of misunderstandings and misreadings of situations and emotions and motivations. Who and what should we believe? For now, though, Achilles is back in the conversation. Interestingly, the two translations I'm working off of each seem to cast Achilles in different lights. The Coleridge, the older translation, translates Achilles' response to Clytemnestra as much more about him and his concerns. She asks him, essentially, if he's heard all of this news. It's a moment of really, like, why the fuck haven't you chimed in, Achilles? Hearing that Agamemnon plans to kill this young woman and that he used Achilles' name to lure her there. 
The Coleridge translation says he replies, quote, I have been listening to your suffering, and I do not bear my own lightly. Meanwhile, the much more recent translation that I'm quoting from in this episode otherwise, the Lushnig translation, translates his response to, quote, I do hear your troubles and am upset over my part in them. I try not to focus on translation differences too often. It can get a bit too in the weeds and take away from the story. But this one is just particularly interesting. Achilles is less obnoxious here. He's kinder. This translation feels to me like he is really owning up to his part, even if it was just his name being used. Regardless of the version of Achilles being presented in each translation, his response to Clytemnestra's cries that her daughter will be killed after being tricked by the marriage to him is to place the blame squarely on Agamemnon and note that it won't be taken lightly. A not-so-subtle nod to the more famous instance of these men placing blame on each other and in relation to a young woman, no less. A similar thing will happen nine years into the Trojan War when Agamemnon steals a woman that Achilles believe he rightfully stole. But that won't be for some time, chronologically. Still, Euripides clearly wants us to make that connection and to see the origins of their contentious relationship. Achilles never was a fan of Agamemnon, and for good reason. At this point, Clytemnestra is panicking. She's at a complete loss, her emotions and fears are running wild, and she has no idea what she can do to prevent Agamemnon horrifically murdering their daughter, all in the name of her own sister. She falls at Achilles' feet, grabbing hold of him and begging for his help. She has no pride left. She tells him she will do anything to save her daughter. Quote, I put a crown on her head and brought her here to be married, and now I am leading her to slaughter. Clytemnestra reminds Achilles that while this may not have been his idea, his plan, his name is associated with what is happening. He will have some of the blame for a young woman sacrificed when she believed she was going to be married. He won't get out of this unharmed. With this speech, the anger coursing through Clytemnestra, the blame for her husband, Euripides is reminding us and the audience of yet another famous moment with these characters. Clytemnestra's murder of Agamemnon after the war. This is the moment she changes. This is the line that Agamemnon crossed that will have the woman spending the next ten years plotting his murder. Her hatred of her husband grows more and more with every passing day while he's gone. You can almost see the change in Clytemnestra, like a switch being flicked. I do love her murder of Agamemnon. It's just so righteous, at least as far as murders go. Before Achilles can respond to Clytemnestra's begging and her somewhat subtle threats, the chorus chimes in, quote, To give birth is terrifying. Still, it has a powerful pull all mortals share in toiling tirelessly for their children. I do appreciate a nod to those who give birth, the extra level of everything that comes with that experience, the chorus praises Clytemnestra for it. 
Achilles, to his credit, appreciates the horrific situation that Clytemnestra and Iphigenia are now in. He admits guilt of his own, that it's his name that will be associated with her death, even if it will be Agamemnon who commits the act. He does also really pity himself here and wish to make himself out to be the most honorable and important man around. So, you know, it's a bit of a give and take when it comes to Achilles' personality in this play. It does still feel very Achilles. His speech begins, quote, My spirit rises up with indignation. And goes from there. All about his own character, his upbringing with Chiron, how he was taught to be uncomplicated. Sure, Achilles. He explains that when Agamemnon and Menelaus show good leadership, then he will obey them. But that when they do not, he will not. Another very obvious line being drawn to the inevitable argument between those two that will begin the Iliad and all of that mess. Most importantly, though, in all of this epic speech, and it is epic and incredibly long, is that Achilles announces very clearly, quote, Your daughter was called my wife. She will not be slaughtered by her father. Then, though, it devolves. Again, it's all about Achilles. Some choice moments include that if Iphigenia is murdered so shamelessly, quote, I would be the worst man of all the Argives, I would be nothing, and Menelaus would count as a man, as if I were the son not of Peleus, but of some demon. Dude, we get it, you're worried about your image, but maybe the most important thing going on here isn't that your name would be sullied a bit, but that a young woman is about to be murdered for some good wind in a war over a woman who, at least as all of the Greeks believe, went with Paris quite willingly. Achilles vows, finally, quote, Agamemnon the king will not touch your daughter, not as far as to lay the tip of his finger on her dress. Sure, Achilles, let's see how far that vow goes. Also, if you think he's acting righteously here, even if it's a bit much about him, just wait, because the same speech once again devolves even further to the point where Achilles notes that thousands of women are looking to marry him and that Agamemnon insulted him by just, well, not asking if he could use Achilles' name in the marriage bait to bring Iphigenia to Aulis. <sighs> so much for a half-decent Achilles, right? He's making it very clear that for him, it isn't about Iphigenia's untimely death, it isn't about a father murdering his daughter for the war effort, but it's about the fact that Achilles is embarrassed by it. The fact that Agamemnon used Achilles' name without asking. Achilles even admits that if Agamemnon had asked him, he would have been totally fine with the whole thing. <laughs> and for good measure, Achilles finishes his speech with, quote, I am not a god, but to you I have appeared as if a great god, and so I will be. Nice guy. I find it really fascinating to watch specifically how Euripides lays the groundwork for all the epics and plays that have come before him. He even wrote this play's like pseudo-sequel, Iphigenia Among the Taurians, before this one. So with Aulus, it feels as though he's trying to connect it with everything that took place along with, and we'll get to this, 
kind, maybe connecting it to his own sequel that he'd written long before. He's laying out the shit characters of Agamemnon and Menelaus, the deceptive nature of both men. He's laying out the unbelievable ego of Achilles and everything that comes with that. He's laying out Clytemnestra's fury, her righteous anger at her husband. He's laying out the trouble between Achilles and the brothers, how their relationship, as it begins here, will turn into what it is as the Iliad begins. One where a slight by Agamemnon will cause Achilles to give up the war effort entirely until he's satisfied that he's no longer been embarrassed or shamed by Agamemnon. Euripides wants this play to be aligned with every bit of literature, and I love it. With this news from Achilles that he will save Iphigenia from her father, Clytemnestra is thankful and relieved. She ignores the bit about Achilles being fine with it if Agamemnon had only asked, because how could she not? And she gets straight to thanking him for his help, for his kindness. With this confirmed that Achilles will do his best to help Clytemnestra and to prevent Iphigenia's murder, they begin to plan. Achilles' initial idea for this is, get ready for it because it's brilliant and brave, Achilles' first idea for how to save Iphigenia is for Clytemnestra to beg her husband not to murder their daughter. What an idea! How could anyone have come up with such a brilliant plan? Oh, Achilles, best of the Greeks indeed! Clytemnestra hesitates. She knows her husband and knows how difficult this would be, if not impossible, but what is she to do? Achilles is now her only hope, and his idea is... this. So she agrees, but wants clarification for where she will find him if Agamemnon refuses. Where can she and Iphigenia find Achilles so that he can provide them with safety like he promised? Well, he tells her. Don't look for us, we'll find you. (sighs) Very reassuring indeed. Putting their so-called plan into action, both Achilles and Clytemnestra leave the stage, leaving behind the chorus to transition the audience and remind them of how they got to that place. The chorus sings of Achilles' family, of his parents, Peleus and Thetis, and their wedding on the slopes of Mount Pelion, attended by all of the gods, by the muses. They sing to make this wedding sound beautiful, to make the marriage of Peleus and Thetis sound beautiful. In truth, Thetis wanted nothing to do with Peleus. She was forced to marry him by Zeus. They were not happy, not much of a couple at all. Beyond having Achilles, Theta spent most of her time away from Peleus in the sea with her fellow Nereids. The only thing she loves about that relationship is Achilles. But the chorus doesn't sing of that. They sing of love and beauty and the loveliness of the wedding. They sing of Chiron, the centaur, who would raise Achilles. Their song, though, takes a turn. It becomes dark as they sing next of Iphigenia and her fate, that she will be crowned like a heifer the sacrificial animal, quote, making your mortal throat stream blood. And they sing of the gods and the godless. Godlessness holds sway now. Goodness is cast aside by mortal men. Lawlessness tramps down the laws. There is no effort common among men to avoid the gods' envy.
This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global. Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Nobody wants to outlive their money, but it happens, especially for women. That's why Gainbridge offers the Parity Flex annuity. It's designed for women's unique retirement needs with flexible withdrawals to help cover unexpected expenses, plus a guaranteed lifetime income benefit that keeps paying you even if your account balance is zero. In other words, it's like getting a paycheck for life. We'll say that again. A paycheck for life. Guaranteed. Sounds too good to be true? It's not. It's the Parity Flex annuity, and it's one more example of their commitment to creating a better financial future for women. One where they feel empowered, not excluded, and ready to take on whatever their next chapter holds. Gainbridge believes financial flexibility and security are things we all could use more of. At Retirement Income You Can't Outlive is the ultimate flex. Who's with us? Start saving now at Gainbridge.io. Please visit Gainbridge.io slash ParityFlex for current rates, for product disclosures and disclaimers, and other important information. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Pluma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds to Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. When we meet with Clytemnestra again, she is affected and emotional, but she is strong. She tells the audience that she's spoken with Iphigenia, told her daughter of her father's plan to sacrifice her, and that now, oh look, there's Agamemnon. Agamemnon greets his wife kindly, trying to get on the right side of her. He's trying once again to prevent her from attending the so-called wedding. He tells her of everything that's been prepared, all the animal sacrifices, the preparations, the customs that are just about ready for Iphigenia to marry Achilles. Clytemnestra, though, is not planning to deal with any of this. She just rushes him along, lets him spew his lies before announcing, quote, Your words sound fine, but what are you doing? And with that, she brings out Iphigenia, calling to their daughter where she is within the tent, where she's been throughout this whole mess. With her baby brother, Orestes, she calls for Iphigenia to come outside to bring her brother. 
And so finally, once more, we actually see Iphigenia on stage for only the second time in this whole play, a play that is really about these relationships, about Clytemnestra and her anger. Iphigenia comes out, greets her father, teary-eyed and holding her brother. Why are you crying? Agamemnon asks her kindly, asking if she's no longer glad to see her father. He has no idea. Oh, where to start, is Clytemnestra's response. Where to begin with my list of woes? Agamemnon is thrown, unsure what she's talking about, though I think we can hope he has an inkling of what's to come, that he isn't so convinced by his own lies, that he realizes she has outsmarted him and he is about to be exposed. Will you answer my questions honestly? Clytemnestra asks him. Whatever I ask? He agrees. Of course he will. Clytemnestra asks him outright, quote, Are you planning to kill your daughter? My daughter? Of course, he doesn't admit it, just accuses her of being suspicious. Clytemnestra, though, gives absolutely no fucks at this point, and she is not having it. No more lies. Answer the question, she tells him. Once more, he doesn't answer directly, just says that if she asks him a more reasonable question, he's more likely to answer. Asshole. She pushes him. No, she says. Just answer the fucking question. I like to imagine if she were speaking now, she would absolutely be adding the word fuck in as many places as possible. What else is there to do but to be furious? Agamemnon's response? Quote, Fate rules our lives. My luck has turned sour. My luck. My luck. Ours too, Clytemnestra says, referring to Iphigenia. He can't get away with making this all about him. From here, Agamemnon's bullshit crumbles. Have I done anything to wrong you? He asks his wife, whose response is simply, You're really asking me that? Do you have no feelings? This is when he knows. He knows his lies have been discovered. And what is his response? Well, as always, it is all about the man. Quote, I am ruined. My secrets have been betrayed. Literally, his concerns are related to his own character and the fact that his horrible lies were given up by somebody else. Nothing else concerns him, which is, again, why Clytemnestra feels pretty confident in murdering the fucker when he returns from war. But for now, she wants him to shut up and listen, and she tells him as much. This is when Clytemnestra relays a bit of history, her own backstory, that we don't really have anywhere else. She wants to tell Agamemnon everything he's done to wrong her, starting from the very beginning. If you think back to my episode with Amy Hines back in March about Clytemnestra, Amy made references that I wasn't aware of, and this is it. Quote, Against my will you married me, took me by force after killing Tantalus, my former husband, and tearing my infant son from my breast, you smashed him on the ground with violent hands. She goes on, reminding him that her own brothers, the famous twins Castor and Polyduques, made war with Agamemnon for this, but that he was able to get out of it by supplicating himself to Clytemnestra's father, who relented and allowed Agamemnon to marry her. 
what a fucking horror show. Could you imagine starting a marriage like that? Just more fuel to the fire of what a horrible monster Agamemnon is, how much he deserves what she will give him after the war. Clytemnestra has now revealed that should he still kill Iphigenia, she won't even be the first of Clytemnestra's children that he has murdered. Clytemnestra reminds Agamemnon what a good wife she's been, doing everything necessary of her and then some, making his life and home a happy place, a feat in itself, even ignoring how their life started out. She goes on, shifting to their children, to Iphigenia. If you're asked why you're killing her, what's your answer? She asks him. Do I have to answer for you? Quote, to recover Helen from Menelaus, a fair price you will pay in trading your child for an evil woman. Still no mention from Clytemnestra that Helen is in fact her sister. But maybe for her now it doesn't really matter. If the question is her sister, who she sees as having run off to Troy with Paris in exchange for her daughter's life, the answer is clear. Still, even with Clytemnestra, there is an obvious demonizing of Helen going on. Everyone hates her. Everyone blames her for the situation. She is loathed across the board. Not a new feeling towards that woman in particular, but it is interesting here, and especially because Euripides has written sympathetic Helens in previous plays. He seems to be really channeling the Greek understanding from back then in this play, that it really is all her fault. From here, Clytemnestra is just spewing her very valid emotions at Agamemnon. She speaks of how she will feel after her daughter has been sacrificed, how she will feel seeing her empty bed, seeing her other daughters, Electra and Chrysothemis, without their sister. She speaks of how she will feel about Agamemnon while he is away at war, how she will blame him, how she will still speak to Iphigenia after she's gone. Speaking of how her father killed her. She goes on and on. It's beautiful and sad and dark as hell. It's angry and righteous and powerful. Clytemnestra is a powerhouse in most interpretations of her. She's absolutely a favorite of mine across the board. But here we get such a powerful motherly speech. It's maternal and personal and deeply, deeply tragic. She asks him what prayers he will make as he cuts his daughter's throat, what prayers he will make for himself while he's away. Quote, what good will you pray for when you kill your child? A homecoming as deadly as when you set out from home? She's almost threatening him outright, though he has no idea. We do, though, and the audience does. We know what she does when he returns home. How she lays out the literal red carpet, draws him a nice, warm, welcoming bath before she and his arch-enemy Aegisthus viciously stab him to death, turning his bathwater a deep, blood-red the more I read of her speech, the more I wish I could just read it to you outright. It's really something. It means so much. She is biting, spitting hatred at him, saying he should have asked all the other Greeks to come together to decide who was sacrificed, that they should have left it up to chance, whose daughter had to die, or that it should be Menelaus who kills his daughter, Hermione, in return for her mother, who actually has a part to play in all of this, unlike Iphigenia. She goes on and on before finally finishing her speech with a plea. 
do not kill our daughter. And this incredible speech by Clytemnestra, a powerful woman in this play with some of the most important and powerful lines, is followed by another. Iphigenia gets her own speech, gets to voice her own feelings on the horror show she's found herself in because of her absolute shit father. Quote, Do not kill me before my time. She speaks of wishing she could sing like Orpheus, that if she could convince the world around her to bend to her will with song, that that's what she would do. But since she can't, she will resort to pleas with her father, to tears, to wrapping her arms around his knees in supplication, begging to be allowed to live. Quote, I was the first to call you father, you to call me child. I first sat on your knees and we exchanged sweet gestures of affection. She's trying to pull his heartstrings to remind him that he is a father first, that she is his firstborn, his eldest child, the one he first bonded with. She speaks of a conversation they had when he asked her about her future, when she would marry a loving husband and what their relationship would be. She says she remembers these words of his, but that he's forgotten them and wants to kill her instead. She begs him not to do it, calling upon his ancestry for them and for her mother. Do not kill me, she pleads. To Clytemnestra and Iphigenia's pleas for mercy, Agamemnon responds poorly. He says that he feels bad about it, that they can't understand how he suffers over it, but that he just has to do it. He can't get out of the sacrifice of his own daughter. He has so much to say about the Greeks amassed there at Alice, how they need to go to war, how they need to teach the Trojans a lesson about stealing other men's wives. This explodes into the suggestion that if they don't go to war, then Troy will come to them, that all the daughters of Greece will be taken over, will be raped by the men of Troy. He goes on and on, and all of this is a stretch. It's near impossible to see how any of this reaction is actually logical, especially when one sees how the Trojan War panned out. The Trojans weren't going to come for the Greeks. They only defended themselves, and the Greeks laid waste to them. It just isn't the same, and Euripides knows that and is making that same point. But that's what Agamemnon says. It isn't a discussion to be had. And with that, he just leaves. Iphigenia are left to lament their fate, crying out. Iphigenia speaks about her suffering, her situation, how she wished so many things had never happened so that she wouldn't be in this position, that she wished Paris had never been born at all. Finally, though, the pair see a group of men coming towards them. Iphigenia is startled, but Clytemnestra believes it's Achilles and his men there to save her, there to fulfill the promise he made. In a show of, of womanhood and being a girl in this world, Iphigenia is horrified to see Achilles and tries to run inside to avoid him. She's embarrassed that their marriage has failed. In her fear of her own modesty, she forgets that it was never real in the first place. There is Achilles, and Clytemnestra rushes towards him for news. 
And, well, fuck Achilles. He says that she must be sacrificed. And when Clytemnestra asks if no one spoke out against it, he says that, yes, he did, but he got into trouble for it. He says the Greeks threatened to stone him to death, which, I mean, Achilles of all people. But I suppose we're to believe him. On pressing, he tells Clytemnestra that even the Myrmidons, his own men, turned against him, that they were the first to do so. He says he tried, that he said they couldn't kill his future wife, that she'd been promised to him by her father. But none of it worked, though, he says. But none of it worked, though he says he will still defend Clytemnestra and Iphigenia. So fine, I guess I feel a tiny bit bad for being so judgmental of him, but it's his fault for otherwise being such an enormous dink. He's willing to protect them, and he has the men to help him. But, he says, there is a group of 10,000 Greeks on their way now, with Odysseus leading them to remove Iphigenia so that she may be sacrificed. He is not my main man in this play. Mm -mm. Odysseus is described so horrifically as Achilles saying that he will, quote, drag her by her yellow hair. Listening to all of this, though, Iphigenia makes a decision. She stops Achilles and her mother and explains that she doesn't want it to be like this, that they should be grateful for Achilles' help, but that it isn't worth all of it. It isn't worth going up against the entire Greek army. She says that she will go willingly that she will allow herself to be sacrificed for the better good, for the good of Greece, for all the bullshit reasons that Agamemnon spewed at her that maybe we're supposed to believe. Her speech is beautiful and eloquent and extensive, but it makes the simple point. She'll give herself up for the good of Greece, of her family, for the good of everyone. Sacrifice my body, she says, quote, Take Troy, that is my memorial for ages yet to come. And this incredible speech, this powerful speech that's meant to be spoken from a young woman facing her own unexpected, tragic, and deeply personal death, this eloquent and moving speech by Iphigenia about sacrificing it all, convinces Achilles that, oh damn, it actually could have been pretty cool to be married to her. Too bad she's about to be sacrificed. To his credit, Achilles does offer, quote, Look, I still want to help you and take you home as my bride. He says that he feels very sorry that she has to die, and he's grieved that he can't save her simply by fighting all the Greeks. He finishes with a line that is translated so Achilles-like. Quote, Think about it. Death is bad. <laughs> Death is bad, Achilles, well said, and something you will learn yourself in a few short years. Death is bad. Though moved by his offer, Iphigenia is over it all now. She's decided that her own life isn't worth the trouble of war, and that Helen will cause enough of her own trouble. Iphigenia doesn't want to add to it by allowing Achilles to fight for her, to kill the Greeks there to have her sacrificed... Achilles hears her and acknowledges her decision, but adds that he will still have his weapons close at hand at the altar where she will be sacrificed, that she might feel differently about her situation when the blade is at her throat. But Iphigenia is unmoved and shifts her attention to her mother. 
Clytemnestra has been standing, watching, silently crying throughout Iphigenia's speeches as she realizes she won't be able to save her daughter, that the sacrifice is going to happen. The pair have an emotional exchange with Clytemnestra asking her oldest daughter how she'll tell her sisters how she will live back in Mycenae without her daughter, with the knowledge of what her husband has done. Iphigenia doesn't want Clytemnestra to mourn her or to blame Agamemnon to be angry with him. But, well, Clytemnestra isn't going for it, and I do not blame her. It's time. Iphigenia knows the Greeks are on their way to get her, to bring her to the altar. She tells Clytemnestra to stay behind, that she shouldn't see what's going to happen. Clytemnestra can't bear it, though, and she calls out to her daughter, asking her to stay, not to leave. She begs her. It's tragic as all fuck. But Iphigenia has taken on the role of martyr. She is strong in her decision, she is confident, and she feels as though not only is she doing the only necessary thing, but that she is doing the noble and good thing. She addresses the chorus of young women, speaking to them of celebrating the goddess Artemis, asking them to sing a hymn to the goddess for Iphigenia. As she prepares to exit the stage, bound for her sacrifice, she sings of her fate, of the Greeks he will go to sack Troy, of Artemis, the queen, the blessed goddess. She sings of her own sacrificial blood, of her beloved home in Mycenae. The chorus follows, also singing of Iphigenia and her bravery, of the impending war with Troy, the army of the Greeks, of Agamemnon and victory, and, quote, a glorious crown for Greece, glory never to be forgotten. Oh, nerds, nerds, nerds. This is by far the longest episode I have ever had for this podcast, at least when it comes to the narratives that I actually write. (laughs) Just turns out I have so many thoughts about this play. I really hope you've enjoyed these episodes. I found them incredibly fun to research and write. I just, I find Euripides' plays so fascinating. I find this play so additionally fascinating for all the reasons I've mentioned throughout. It connects with so many other plays and myths in ways not many others do. You can see Euripides dropping hints and clues to past works that take place in the future for these characters. Aeschylus' incredibly famous trilogy of the return of Agamemnon, Clytemnestra's fury, the Iliad itself, all that will go down between Achilles and Agamemnon, all the mess and horror of that war. The passages towards the end of the glory of Greece, I feel, are at least in part tongue-in-cheek. Everyone would have known the Iliad to be pretty clearly anti-Greek. They don't come off well in it, even for the Greek people. And here is Euripides singing of glory. I'm so curious exactly what point he was trying to make, or was he just trying to highlight the folly in basing decisions around notions of glory and and an inability to face embarrassment? 
Iphigenia is such an interesting character, the way she comes around to her decision and becomes a kind of bastion for this idea of a war based on the glory of the Greeks and the idea that the Trojans should be wiped off the map for something as little as a wronged husband left by his wife. Clytemnestra, meanwhile, is so strong and angry and righteous, and I just love how she stands up to her husband, tells him no, unequivocally. The way you can see her mind being affected by him. You can almost see her beginning planning his fate, his murder, that won't happen for another ten years. Love Clytemnestra. What a woman. What a woman faced with unspeakable horror. Of course, just these two characters alone feel so Euripides to me. Two strong women taking up the majority of the lines and stage time. Fucking badass. I mean, it's too bad the characters would have been played by men. But still, they were women when they were speaking, and that alone really means something. To me, Euripides is providing us with this background on Clytemnestra almost as a way to vindicate the Clytemnestra of Aeschylus' Agamemnon when she murders her husband. When you meet her here, you can see more of how she got to that point and how kind of understandable it all is. I mean, murder is always bad, but it feels an awful lot less bad when it's the murder of a man who's killed two of your children. Well, aren't I just making this a hundred times longer? <laughs> but fuck if it isn't all fascinating as hell. Goddamn, I love Euripides. What a cool dude. Quick reminder, because when this airs, it will be coming up fast. Please, I would love to have you at the first ever live stream of this show. Tickets are just $15. They are at momenthouse.com slash let's talk about myths, baby, or at the link in this episode's description. Thank you all so much for listening. I really love these episodes. I'm so thrilled to have finally read this play and brought it to you all. It is a good one. Huge thank you to Ash Strain, who helped me with research for this episode. It helped immensely. And technically, we're not done yet. I will be back tomorrow. You're all the best. I am Liv, and I really love Euripides. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do, too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Nobody wants to outlive their money, but it happens, especially for women. That's why Gainbridge offers the Parity Flex annuity. It's designed for women's unique retirement needs with flexible withdrawals to help cover unexpected expenses, plus a guaranteed lifetime income benefit that keeps paying you even if your account balance is zero. In other words, it's like getting a paycheck for life. We'll say that again. A paycheck for life. Guaranteed. Sounds too good to be true? It's not. It's the Parity Flex annuity, and it's one more example of their commitment to creating a better financial future for women. 
One where they feel empowered, not excluded, and ready to take on whatever their next chapter holds. GameBridge believes financial flexibility and security are things we all could use more of. At Retirement Income You Can't Outlive is the ultimate flex. Who's with us? Start saving now at GameBridge.io. Please visit GameBridge.io slash ParityFlex for current rates, for product disclosures and disclaimers, and other important information. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Pluma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds to Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club.